Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave, and it is my privilege to serve as lead pastor here, and I've been doing that since uh, forever, it feels like it's been a, a long time. It's a joy for me to be able to say um, I've, I've been here for almost 20 years, and I can't wait to see the next 20. And uh, so I, I've been starting a series on the book of James. The book of James is a little book of the Bible tucked away towards the end of the Bible that doesn't get a lot of attention from most Christians, but it's a very, very powerful letter because it's so practical and yet it never really takes its eyes off of Jesus Christ. The person who wrote the book of James, if you missed our first couple messages, the person who wrote the book of James is named James, and he is none other than the younger brother of Jesus who grew up in the household of Jesus, and Jesus, the Son of God, was his big brother. So think about what that experience must have been like and what kind of view of God in life that produced. And when you read the book of James, you begin to understand this is the way a person thinks and lives when they grow up in the same house as Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons I find the book of James so fascinating and so gripping. Today, um, James really explicitly teaches on a theme that's going to pop up again and again, and that's this idea of how much money or the lack of it has uh, an impact on the way we experience life. And that in life, if you were to draw a line down the middle of humanity, you can largely define humanity in terms of who's got money and who doesn't. It's one of the biggest ways we understand where we fit and who we are. It has such an impact on the way we feel about our own lives. Now, the title of the message is Rags and Riches. I hope that's not illegal to deface U.S. currency like that, but I just went for it anyway. had some fun in Photoshop last night. Um, I always thought that it was an interesting thing. Well, let, let me, before I even say that, let me just read the passage with you. Here's what the passage says. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed, in the same way the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now, let me just time out first of all and say it's a very common idea among people at churches that God hates money and rich people, and he loves poor people. And so if you're rich, you're going to squirm pretty regularly in church because they're going to point the finger to say, shame on you for having money. I need to tell you that's not the view God has and it's not the view we teach at Harvest. But we also do not underestimate the intense power that money has over our hearts. And it can have power whether you have lots of it or it can have power whether you have not enough of it. In fact, some of the most materialistic people I've ever met are poor people who are obsessed with what they don't have and their whole lives, their whole countenance and sense of well-being is driven by what they don't have and what they would like to have. And so make no mistake about it, money has a big impact on our lives, but it's not just the wealthy who have to think about this. It is those of us who would classify ourselves as not having much that have to pay attention 
to the teaching that Jesus gives regarding money. I've always thought it was one of the great ironies of life in America that printed on the face of every one of our pieces of currency is this phrase, in God we trust. Even though in our culture money is probably the biggest idol we wrestle with, right on the face of it is the phrase, in God we trust. In God we trust. This message and this text may sound like it's about money, but ultimately it really, I believe, is a text that has to do with trust. Specifically, where we place our trust instinctively when we come upon hardships and trials and suffering. This passage doesn't stand alone. It is part of a growing argument which James is making that all comes together to give us a very solid picture of what life in Christ should be like. And here's one of the things James has been saying, is that the ultimate goal of God in each of our lives, even though we're all so different, the one ultimate goal of God in all of our lives is to make us spiritually mature and complete in Christ. He may be doing a lot of other things in our lives, but I can tell you this is true for every person here. The one thing we all have in common is God is using everything that happens to us to grow us spiritually, because his one hope for us before we die is that we would attain to spiritual maturity. If you never dunk a basketball, you never marry a supermodel, you never become a millionaire, you never shake the hands of a starting point guard in the Chicago Bulls, if you don't get any of those dreams to come true, you might die a little incomplete. But the one thing God does not want for any of us is that we should die spiritually immature. He is growing us in our soul through everything that happens. And the thing that we might not like but we have to recognize is that God uses hardship probably more than any other thing to produce that spiritual growth in us. That's because hardship forces us to to respond to it. You know, comfort doesn't take any strength or power. It doesn't take any intentionality to be comfortable and to enjoy something. That happens in a very passive state of heart, in a very passive posture. But in order to face up to hardship, you've got to dig down, and it's one of the things that is true of life. Resistance drives growth. What James and the rest of the New Testament is teaching is the the way to get through the trials and grow through them is to develop what the Bible calls wisdom. Wisdom is a lot of things, but in part what wisdom is, is knowing where to point your eyes when you're discouraged. Wisdom is realizing you are recording the story of your life through the camera lens that you have in your head. And when what you're looking at right in front of you discourages you and defeats you, wisdom is to look somewhere else. To stop staring and obsessing over the thing that's defeating you and realize there's another way to look at this whole thing. There's another place to point your eyes. In other words, Wisdom is having the right perspective and the right priorities, especially when the stuff hits the fan. You don't need that much wisdom in the good times, but the bad times will force you real quick to figure out how wise you are. And now an additional element of wisdom James is laying down for us is a big part of wisdom is where do you put your trust when you can no longer control the situation? Here's the truth. Most of us... We'll trust ourselves. No matter who we are, if you're a pastor, it's still true. Most of us instinctively, we trust ourselves from day to day. 
Very few of us go, Lord, help me drive to work today. You've done it a thousand times. In fact, sometimes I have an appointment at a restaurant and I end up in our church, in the office parking lot. I'm like, oh, look at this. I could literally drive unconscious because I've driven myself to the office and I'm supposed to be somewhere else. We rely on ourselves because most of the stuff we have to do in life, we got it under control. I don't need God or anyone else. I got this down pat. I can do this. So the truth is, most of us trust ourselves until we don't have enough. And it is only when we cannot control the situation any longer that the the issue is forced upon us, well, then who are you going to call? Anyone older than 35, please shout Ghostbusters. For goodness sakes, what are you guys doing with your lives? So here's how it works, right? You trust yourself, you trust yourself, you trust yourself, and then suddenly yourself ain't good enough. You don't have the power to control this particular situation or hardship, and now you freak out because the person I've always trusted isn't enough now. Then what? It forces the issue, doesn't it? Who are you going to trust now, now that you can't trust yourself? Who are you going to trust? And how you resolve that tension is what reveals whether you have wisdom or you don't. Suffering forces us to take stock of our resources. I need some help. I need something. And what do you do? If you're camping and you're stuck, you rummage through your backpack. What do I have available? And if you're like MacGyver, with what little you have available, you try to make the most of it. So suffering forces us to rummage through our bags and figure out what do I have with me on my side in the credits column. And if you look at life that way, there really are only two kinds of people. There are the poor and there are the rich. The poor take stock of their assets and their allies, and what they find is, I have nothing and I have no one. The poor look and they try. They're desperate. But, and you say to the, you know, sometimes you do this on a mission trip, um, try to reach out for help. And they're like, whoa, what a concept. If you hadn't come, I wouldn't. Of course you're reaching out for help, but there's nobody to help. There's no help to be had. There are some people who, despite their deep need, take stock of their assets and their allies and come up short. They don't have anything, and they don't have anyone. And then there's another category of people who, when they dig deep, they say, wow, I got a lot. I've got a lot of assets, and I've got a lot of allies. And so James now deals with these two groups of people, the rich and the poor. And really, I I just want to make a couple quick points here. The first is, If you think about it, there are some important ways that the rich and the poor are actually very different. See how smart I am? Okay. The rich and the poor are not the same. (laughs) This is why you come to Harvest, for this kind of rich insight. Um, Look at verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. That phrase, humble circumstances translates a Greek word that is not just about not having money. That's presumed. These people are literally poor. But that word is also about their lowly social status. What it means is not only are you poor as dirt, you don't have money, but in the eyes of the society around you, you don't have anything. You are not anything. In other words, you don't just have no net worth. You have no worth. People walk past you all day and you're invisible. They don't think you matter. And let's be honest. Every one of us today will walk out of here and this week we will walk past a million people that we think, for whatever reason, just don't matter. 
It's just the way we walk through life. We can't let everyone matter or we go insane. And so we have these people in life that it's safe to dismiss as marginal, as fringe, as not ever having any chance of entering into a relationship with me because the gulf between us is just too big. If you've ever been poor, you will understand the testimony of people who have been poor when they say the greatest pain perhaps is not having nothing but being nothing. Of looking in the mirror and going, I think I agree with the rest of the world. I ain't Jack. And when you look at yourself and realize I don't have anything, then whenever hardships, I mean, just day-to-day life is hard enough for the poor. But when you feel you have nothing and no one and that you are nothing, then when hardships come, the most common response of the poor to hardship is despair and hopelessness. Because if day-to-day life is hard enough to get through when you're poor and don't have anyone or anything, imagine what turning up the heat will do to you. You'll feel like giving up because you'll look at yourself and say, there's nothing here, and you will, you'll just feel like quitting on life. So that's, that's the description of the poor. Let's look at the description of the rich. The rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. A wildflower. Now, the rich here is actually literally rich. These people have a lot of money. And when you think about people who have a lot of money, that is one of the primary definers of their identity. Now, that's not to say that they buy $80,000 handbags and they they throw used um, $20 bills at you like you're, you're a beggar. It's not like they're stuck up. It's more like this. I think the kind of materialism or wealth we most often see today is not ostentatious spending and you know, gold-plated Cadillac limos and things like that. Um, We'll leave that to the sultans in the Middle East. There's a lot of that kind of stuff, ginormous houses and all that. I think what you see more often among the rich is that it is a wonderful feeling to not keep coming up short. It's a wonderful feeling to go to a store and not keep checking prices. I mean, right, I, used to, I had two lives. I had a life when I had lots of money, and I have a life where I have a reasonable amount of money. When I had lots of money, it was really fun going shopping because you'd just be like, we need that, we want that, we need that. Just put it in. I, coupons, girl, whatever. I don't need to look at no coupons. If we need it, put it in the cart. Do you know how intoxicating it is to always have enough? I think that's the greatest power of wealth. It's not that you buy stupid things like 80... See, $80,000 handbags are taxes on people who have money but, stupi- but are stupid. They're, an $80,000 handbag is a tax on dumb rich people. Okay? Please give us some money. What I'm talking about is that kind of wealth that says, you know what? I'm good. I go to the store, I get what I need. Something happens, I'll bail us out. It's that intoxicating feeling that drives so many to desire wealth is wealth is security. Wealth is protection. Wealth gives me the illusion of permanence, of bulletproofness, just made up a word, of a protection that reaches deep down and guards me against everything life will throw at me. It's not the kind of arrogance you might think of as somebody who's always looking in the mirror going, hmm, dang. I wish I could date myself, you know. It's not that kind of arrogance, but it's that kind of subtle arrogance that says, I have everything I need right here. 
Here's what Paul writes to his spiritual son, Timothy. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So what James and Paul are both teaching is one of the great seductions of wealth is that it tempts you to put your trust in it. To say that money is the reason I'm safe. Money is the reason I can face the future. The other seductive power of money is if money is the thing you have most of, money is what you turn to blindly to solve all your problems. It proves the old adage, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail, right? For the rich... The first, and you'll notice this, even when they're being at their noblest, when they hear about a hard time, the first thing they want to do is, what can I buy you? How can I help? That's typical of people who have a lot of money because their, their gut instinct is you can, you can give away something, and that's the greatest power we have. Let me buy you. you know, so sometimes we'll go on a short-term mission trip, and unless you're very, very well-developed in your theology of missions, I can tell you one of the great temptations is to see every need and want to buy an answer to it. Look at those people. I swear for 50 cents, I could buy this kid lunch. Let me buy everybody lunch. Lunch is on me today. And they're like, yes. And you walk away feeling good. But you see what, what we've done is our first response is to buy a solution because our first resource is money. That's the great seductive power of wealth as well, is it blinds you to how many other incredible resources are available to us as followers of Christ because money has been sufficient to meet most needs through most of life. I don't want to poo-poo money and make it something worthless, but I think one of the problems is that sometimes its value is overblown. So in summary, here's the thing. The rich and the poor are different in this. They're different in that they have, the poor have very little and the rich have a lot. So far, not earth-shattering. But also, they're very different in that because of the way they're resourced, they have a very different normal, natural response to hardship. The poor often look at how little they have, look at how hard their, their lives are, and their most common response is despair and hopelessness. Whereas on the rich, rich side of the column, they look at their assets and allies and they say, wow, I've got a lot, and their most common response to hardship is, I don't need any help. I'm good. I can take care of this. It's pride and self-reliance. So, so do you see that that's the way? And I'm not trying to create a caricature that every rich person we know is like that. I'm saying this is the natural default setting when you're not intentional. If you just slide down the hill, this is where you'll end up. So that's, those are the key ways I think the rich and the poor are different. They're different in their resourcing and they're different in their response. Now let's, let's look at the way that the rich and the poor are the same. They're the same. Even though they're resourced differently, even though they respond differently to life's hardships, their different responses are actually born out of the same error or sin. Okay? Because the human heart isn't all that complex. It basically has a root sin out of which all the other errors flow. So, so let me tell you how the rich and the poor are actually the same. The first common sin that I think both groups of people will share is materialism. Now, materialism is not like, um, you know, bathing in gold coins and 
rubbing yourself with $100 bills. Like it's that, that's a very cartoonish picture of materialism. It's the person who's a money grubber and loves nice things. Let's, get, let's erase that side of materialism out of our minds because that's not the person I'm trying to, to, to respond to here. But it's more like this. Materialism at its root is it's an overvaluation of the importance and power of money and material resources. It's seeing, it's, it's this way. Materialism says that money and the things it can buy are the greatest source of security and protection for us. It says that money is the, the, the source of deliverance, our way out of every trial and hardship we fall into. In a way, materialism at its root is giving money the role that God's supposed to have in our lives. God protects us. God delivers us. But if we have money, it's very common to slip into, well, money provides for me. Money protects me. And if that's the case, then ultimately what I'm saying is, well, where did that money come from? I earned it. So I protect me and I provide for me. And if you're lucky enough to be loved by me, I got you. Stand behind me. (laughs) I will protect you and I will provide for you. So the poor person's materialism says this. Money is everything. And I ain't got none. Poor me. So the poor person still worships the power of money, sees it as deliverance. It's everything. And the problem is, it's everything, but I don't have any of it. And so that's why, apart from God, apart from Jesus, poor person's natural response is hopelessness and despair. Because if you live in a world where money is king and you ain't got none, then you are at the bottom of the barrel, aren't you? So materialism is one of the reasons we respond the way we do, is money is king, I don't have any, so poor me, I have despair and hopelessness. On the other side, on the rich side of the equation, money is king, I got tons of it. I might just be king. And that's why the most common response without Jesus, if you're wealthy, is I got everything I need. I can provide everything I'm going to need. I am actually God. It's much easier to do evangelism among the poor than the rich. Because it's hard to talk about a savior to people who are saving themselves every day. At the office, at the gym, at the financial planner's office. Here's the problem. They're both wrong. And so what James says to them is, look, you poor person, boast. That's one of the only times that the word boast or brag is given as a positive thing. He says, poor person, listen, lift your head. You are not as destitute as you think. Because you live in a world that believes money is king, but that is not the world that God has made. The world you actually live in as a Christian is a world in which Jesus is king and you know him. So if you only look at the world and at yourself in light of the world's measuring stick, you will have hopelessness and despair. You will stand on this side and listen to the world's rules and go, I am so depressed with my life. Everyone else has more good stuff than me. And that's just like a way of saying, but poo on Jesus, even though I'm rich in him, that's not really what I want. I want the stuff the world tells me I need to have. Right? 
That's like the feeling a husband has when you're walking after a date down a dark street and you see a couple thugs and your wife goes, oh, if only there was a strong man, like a real macho man, who could make me feel safe at a time like this. Oh, honey, if only. And what's the guy's like, what, what's that supposed to make me feel like? Oh, oh, I didn't mean, yeah, you did mean that. It's a way of saying you've got something already in your hand and the world has seduced you into not valuing it at all. And so what James is saying to that person is, you think you're so low, but if you open your eyes, what you'll realize, you're not so low after all. If you measure by money, sure, you're low. doesn't take a genius to see that. But you have to focus on the fact that you are in Christ, you have Christ, you will be exalted someday, glorified. You are not as low as you think you are unless you choose the wrong measuring rod and depress yourself all day and all night. To the rich person, he says, look, you're not as rich as you think you are. You've got a lot, and a lot of that is because I gave it to you. But here's the thing. Life will throw at you something your money can't save you from. And here's the good news. He's not trying to beat up the wealthy, but he's saying, boast that despite how much you have and how great you are, you know someone greater than you who is on your side. So that when your money finally runs out or proves insufficient, you will discover that you actually, in your humility of coming under God, are better off than you ever imagined you could be. That whatever it is you banked on, when it falls short, boast in that you knew God, you knew his son, Jesus Christ. And in that position of humility, you will find your true security and your true greatness. That's the, that's the product of the sin of materialism, is it overvalues money and material things and leads us to either be proud and self-reliant or depressed and hopeless. And Jesus says, how about if I change the measuring stick completely, let's throw materialism out the door and let's look at the world through the eyes of God and you will realize that, in fact, the rich aren't so rich, the poor aren't so poor, but everybody is blessed in Jesus Christ. Are you with me? All right, sometimes I feel like I'm preaching to myself. Another sin that I think the rich and poor share is unbelief. I would define unbelief like this. Unbelief is mathematical godlessness. Okay? Unbelief is mathematical godlessness. Meaning, it's not like unbelief is you reject God. Unbelief is that you disregard God or you forget God. Have you ever gotten a a math problem wrong and you swear you had it right, but you're like, oh, I forgot a constant. Darn. Just by forgetting one number, the equation doesn't resolve and you get a, you, you get a C minus, right? That's the way it is with mathematical godlessness or unbelief. That you have this habit of approaching life without regarding God first, without prioritizing God's perspective, inclusion of God in it. And so here we are stumbling through life, processing everything in a way that God doesn't enter the equation, so it doesn't balance at the end. And we scratch our heads and go, why is it so easy for some people, and why is it so difficult for me? Well, the common thread probably is unbelief. 
That your habit is to approach life like everybody else approaches life. That the truth, the sad truth, is most Christians live life in a way that isn't that distinguishable from most non-Christians. Yes, we pray before we eat, and we're here on Sunday mornings. But aside from that, I think our society would be radically different if there were many, many other examples of the difference between us. I think the reason there isn't that much distinction between the church and the non-believing world in America is precisely this. It's mathematical godlessness or unbelief. That we have fallen into the habit of forgetting God. So the, the poor person looks at their situation, and they're in big trouble. I mean, this is big, big trouble. Bigger than I think I can bear. And they're looking around for resources, and they're looking around for resources. Like that woman in the alley going, where's the man? Where's the man? And the husband's like, right here. Mm, 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 right here. And she's like, I, if only. And she's looking right past this, the one guy God has given her to take the bullets so she could run away. It's what we do to God all the time. It's not that we reject him, but we fall into the habit of just simply forgetting him. Oh, yeah. God. Huh. What a concept. And so that's one of the reasons the poor and all those who have little and are little fall into despair is that they're looking around going, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have. And they forget what they have. They forget who they have. Unbelief leads to despair because God's right there and you keep overlooking him and forgetting him. The rich, on the other hand, have the exact same problem from another side. They go, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble. What do I have? What do I have? Ooh. Ooh, I have a lot. I've got good insurance. I've got a, a giant nest egg. I've got investment properties in all these different states. I've got, ooh, i got a lot. And they forget that what they have is not always going to be enough. And God's going, <laughs> yeah, you have a lot, but hello. You keep forgetting you also have me. You also have me. And if you forget that, you will adopt a posture of pride and self-reliance, and you will get through much of life, but you'll get through it alone. And on that day, when something happens and you don't have enough, you will come to God the way a stranger comes to another stranger, not the way a son comes to a father or a friend comes to a friend, because you've made it your habit to see your stuff and to forget God. And on that day, you have to go to Him. On that day, you have no choice but to turn to Him with what kind of heart will you approach your Heavenly Father? Sorry about that whole 50 years of disregarding you. Oh, I need your help. That's like the parents who never get a phone call from the kid who goes away to college until, uh, hey, Mom, Dad, so like, how's everything at home? How's the dog? Um, why are you calling? Well, actually, now that you mention it, uh, could I have some money? How does a parent feel in that scenario? Oh, I, I get it. So every day of the last year, no contact. Now you need some money, and I'm your dad again. Oh, wonderful. Sure, son. We'll grudgingly give it, and we'll probably cough on it a little before we send you the cash. Maybe you get a flu or something, you know? Because it doesn't feel good. And it's not good for you to live your whole life disregarding your father thinking you've got enough, because the truth is you don't. 
Unbelief is the same whether you're rich or you're poor. It is the habit of forgetting God until suddenly what? Hardship forces you to remember. And the wise person, when driven to it, will remember, oh, yeah, money is not king. And I have a God who is for me and stands with me. And that's why both are wrong. Unbelief never bears fruit because God is always in the picture, even when we've forgotten him. So to the poor person, James says, listen, you may not have much net worth, but you have infinite worth in the eyes of God. So he says, reject your materialism. Reject this idea that money is the primary measuring stick of humanity. It is not. Humanity is not divided into two groups, the rich and the poor, but two groups, those who are saved by Jesus and those who don't know him. That's the only classification of humanity that will ever really matter. Don't be that guy standing at the pearly gates going, hey, listen, what's it going to take, buddy? Uh, Here's my ID, and there's a little something there for you as well. Is the $100 trick going to work with St. Peter? Listen, just call it a day, huh? Not enough? How about, let me break off another. It's not going to work. So he says, reject your materialism because the only measuring rod of humanity is whether you knew or did not know the Savior. And by that count, poor Christian, you are infinitely wealthy. Reject your unbelief that says, if only I had something. And remember, you have the greatest thing. You have a relationship with Almighty God. He is for you. You are never out of luck if you are in Christ. You are never out of luck. When you are in Christ. To the rich person. He says, listen, I'm not mad at you. Just like Tupac said, right? I ain't mad at you. But here's the problem. You think you're okay. And one day you'll be going about your business. And the lights will go out. Everything will fade to black. And you'll have plans still yet to achieve. What you realize is you lived your whole life with your head down, looking in all the wrong places, and then you're going to have to stand in front of me, and I'll ask you, so let's talk about this thing. And on that day, this is how you're going to feel. Jeez. I wish I would have paid a little more attention to what that whole junk was about down there, because I'm standing here now, and I feel kind of foolish. I, I feel a little bit silly. I thought I had so much. The truth is I banked on things that don't have value in this new place. To the rich person, James would say, take pride in your humiliation. That that doesn't mean God's going to call you names and make you wear a dunce cap and all that. What he said, that same word humiliation is the word that is used to describe the poor's lowly or humble circumstances. That even though you're way up here in the world's eyes, Boast in the fact that when you stand next to God, you're pretty short. Boast in the fact that even though you are great in the eyes of many, you know someone who is greater than you. And that that great being is for you and on your side. That you are not the top of every food chain you encounter. But that you have an advocate and a savior who loves you and will make sure that you see the other side of that tunnel one day. That is the greatest comfort for someone who thinks that they are rich and have to always take care of everything for themselves and their loved ones. And God says, 
why don't you relax a little bit? You're not a provider, I am. And you're not a savior, I am. Why don't you back up a little and let me do my job? God isn't trying to take away something from the rich. He's trying to add something to their life, the same as he is for the poor. He's saying it's not your riches that are the problem. It's that your materialism and your unbelief cause you to live your life apart from me. The prophet Jeremiah, many, many years before Jesus, said these words. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. Here's the bottom line message. Even if money is not the primary issue for you, chances are that there is an asset or resource that you have learned to trust repeatedly for day-to-day life. You know, for years, the thing that I really trusted was a quick wit. I really walked around through, through life believing, you could drop me in any situation in five seconds, I have it figured out. I'll just ride away. I'll roll with it. Don't worry. Put me in any situation and I'll figure it out because I'm MacGyver and I'm Chuck Norris and I'm all those things rolled into one. I'm like, be like Wata. You know, like I'll just flow with it, baby. You better watch out for me. That's what I really believed about myself for such a long time. I'm quick. That's all you need. I'm like a rabbit. Can't catch me. It's just, it's a problem. Because as I've gotten older, I have encountered many things that I just went, <sighs> beats me, man. I'm literally doing this. I'm like, ah, stupid. What, what am I supposed to do? And I realize it's all slowing down a little. Maybe it's intelligence. Maybe it's strength. Maybe it's beauty. Maybe it's a talent you have. I don't know what it is. But when you encounter a trial, you're likely to go there first, to trust that thing first. That will get you through a lot of life. But I know this. Our hearts will break. They will crack in half. Something will happen to you that you won't have enough for. I know we don't want to face it, but just to love someone in this world is to postpone terrible heartache because we won't live forever. Accidents happen. Disease is real. This life, if you've gone through thinking you're going to get out unscathed, you are not awake. You're not paying attention. This life will ravage you one day. It will rock you to the core and you will dig deep. And one day, if you've trusted anything other than Jesus, you will come up short. It won't be enough. There will be a trial that your beauty, your strength, your wealth, your influence, your talents will not get you out of. And then on that day, what will you do? To the poor, Jesus would say, that's okay. You don't have much, but you have everything. 
Chin up. Take hope. To the rich, he will say, you've got a lot, but soon it's going to feel like nothing. But take heart. You have me. I'll get you through it. Guard your lives. Because if you don't walk with Jesus today, if you don't acknowledge him, it will be very awkward turning to him in your hour of direst need. And chances are, like many people have proven, it'll be so awkward you won't do it. You would rather choose to go down in flames than to humble yourself and turn to the God you've ignored. Happens all the time in human families, doesn't it? I would rather die of hunger than ask my dad for help. Really? Yes, really. You can end up feeling that way about your heavenly father, even though his arms are open wide to you. Don't wait until the trial that breaks you to get serious about your relationship with God. Don't wait for the day where your heart is ripped in two pieces to decide, do I believe God or not? Believe him today. Remember him today. Walk with him today. And when that storm comes, you will find like the story of Jesus that your house is built on the rock and not on the shifting sand. Amen? And let's pray together. I'm not trying to scare you or depress you. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. It's true for me. It's true for you. We will not get out of this unscathed. Life is going to break your heart one day. It probably already has for some of us. It's gotten to a place of such humility. You throw your hands up in the air and you say, I don't have anything for this. I'm not sure I'm going to make it to the end of this. It's too much. The only way you're going to make it is if the resource you really trust is infinite. And I only know of one source of power that never runs out. So if you've succumbed to the sin of materialism and you believe that the only thing that really has power are the things you can touch and buy, repent. Realize you have measured yourself by the wrong measuring stick. And that in Christ, you have more than you imagine. If you have sinned the sin of unbelief, of simply just falling into the habit of forgetting God, you'll pay a price for that forgetfulness one day. And so repent. Say, God... I have ignored you way too long. You're right here. It's time I saw you and I acknowledged you and I bowed my knees in front of you. So why don't we spend a little time reflecting, repenting, recommitting our hearts. Let's pray together.
believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Lord, we remember because of your word today that this life is so fleeting. It will be over in the blink of an eye. Those here who are older can hardly believe how fast it's gone. We also acknowledge, just as you promised, Lord Jesus, that in this world we will have trouble. The trials of all kinds are coming for us and have already come. So this morning as a church family, we reject the sin of materialism that would have the poor to believe they are hopeless and destitute, that would have the rich believe that they have all they need in their own hands. We acknowledge you. Knowing you is the measuring rod. And we want to know you and to live with you. Together as a church, we repent of and we reject the sin of unbelief. God, forgive us for moving through our days so forgetful and unmindful of you. Leaving some of us to believe we have no help and no one who loves us. Leaving some of us to believe we have no need for help. We have no need for anyone else. We repent together and we choose to believe you. Help our unbelief. Make it our habit to look for you and acknowledge you in our lives. And Lord, we pray that it would start right now in even the smallest ways. Teach us to be mindful of you right now. And when those trials come, the hardship that will rock us and leave us speechless. On that day, train our hearts to turn to you. Not us to approach you, not as the wayward son or daughter asking for money, but as a loving child comes to a loving father, trusting you, knowing you, walking with you. Make our lives like that in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.